This morning we're going to be looking at the temptation of Christ, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through to 13. And this passage that we're going to look at, it follows on from the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ in the River Jordan. It's something we could we could easily move on from and forget about. After all, the baptism of Jesus was in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, and we're now in chapter 4. But it does follow on from the baptism of Jesus, during which time the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and the voice from heaven said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. It was in that manner that Jesus was anointed to preach liberty and forgiveness of sins and ultimately to lay down his life at the cross as the sacrifice for sins. However, after his baptism and before the commencement of his public ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ was led by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. As I'm sure you all know from experience, you bring forth sin when temptation comes your way and then what happens? Temptation comes to our sin in all sorts of ways, doesn't it? And then what happens? Invariably, what we do is that we are drawn away by our own lusts, by our own self-seeking desires that are in our heart. That's what happens. And so we conceive and bring forth sin because of our own heart's desire, sinful heart's desire, when temptation comes our way. That's essentially it. However, when the sinless Saviour was tempted, we can be sure that unlike any of us, he did not have to contend with being enticed and drawn away by the sinful desires of a wicked and deceitful heart. Before any of you begins to imagine that Jesus had it easier than us because of his sinless purity, well, consider this. The man Christ Jesus, I'm putting an emphasis here on the man, after all, Jesus is very God, but he is also man, very man, according to his humanity, he He is, as we saw last week, a descendant of King David and he is the seed of Abraham. So, the man Christ Jesus experienced and withstood the full force of attack from the evil one, the devil, unlike us, who so quickly capitulate and bring forth sin. Also, in Jesus, we Christians have a great heavenly high priest who represents us before God. A high priest who is co-equal with God, yet he is able to sympathise with you Christians, with your weaknesses, and that is because he really was tempted. It wasn't showtime or anything like that. The devil came along, he tempted Jesus. Jesus was tempted and, and for that reason, he is able to sympathise with us. As it is written in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, 
but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Again, there's a big difference. Without sin, because there's none of that lust and and, and wickedness in the heart of Jesus as there is in us. What we shall see in our passage is the resolve of the Lord Jesus Christ to do the will of his Father who sent him despite receiving, as I've already said, the full force of temptation from the devil. As Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. That was always the case with Jesus. Elsewhere he said that it was his food to do the will of his Father. How many of us can say that it is our food to do God's will? In the passage that we shall now look at, we shall consider three temptations of the Lord Jesus Christ by the devil. They're not necessarily in any order. When I was preparing this, I noticed that the order is actually different in other accounts of the temptation. So we'll look again at verses 1 to 4 in chapter 4. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he was tempted for 40 days, during which time he ate nothing. At the end of the 40 days, he became hungry. And as as can be seen in verse 3, the devil came up to him, came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. By saying those words, the devil raised a doubt about the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. If thou be the Son of God. He's raising doubts there. Not with Jesus, but obviously he, the, the, the whole idea is to raise doubts. And that is despite the voice from heaven just 40 days earlier at the baptism of Jesus saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee am I well pleased. Can you see the connection there? The voice from heaven, God already making that declaration, Thou art my Son. And now we have 40 days later the devil saying, If thou be the Son of God. What you mustn't do is look for any sincerity in anything that the devil says. I say that because when Jesus cast out demons from people, they rightly addressed him as the Son of God. If those evil spirits knew him to be the Son of God, you can be sure that the devil knew as well that Jesus is the Son of God. But that's how the devil operates Not for the first time, his evil strategy was one of raising doubts. He did that when Eve was tempted and deceived in the Garden of Eden. On that occasion, the first thing that the serpent said to Eve was, Yea, 
Have God said, ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Raising that doubt. And then there was the time when the devil said to the Lord, Doth Job not fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he have on every side? The suggestion there from the devil is the only reason that Job is trusting in God is because God has surrounded him with his providential care. No other reason than that. As for what we're now considering, the devil saying to Jesus, if thou be the son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Would it have been wrong for Jesus to miraculously produce some food from the stones to eat it? And I ask that because for all we know, when Jesus multiplied five barley loaves and two small fishes to feed a multitude of people, he may well have eaten some of it himself. I'm not saying he did, but he may have done. And what about when Jesus turned water into the very best wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee? Must we assume that Jesus drank none of that wine? But this is very different. I say that because it's not as if it was God's purpose for Jesus to be without food for 40 days just so that he could miraculously produce some food for himself. Had Jesus miraculously produced bread from stones when he was challenged and tempted by the devil, despite him having been supported by God for the past 40 days, his trust would have ceased to be in God and who, who had led him into the wilderness and into that hungry condition in the first place. No longer would, it be, would he have been trusting in God to preserve him. Jesus responded to that temptation, not with a miracle, but with the word of God. He quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 from the Old Testament, the word of God. I appreciate when I say that, he, what he was doing there was quoting his own word, because he is the word of God. But we first see what Jesus said in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. The background information to what Jesus quoted is that when God delivered the Israelites from their affliction in Egypt, he suffered them to hunger in the wilderness so that they might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. However, the Israelites, they moaned, they complained when they were hungry, and in so doing, they demonstrated their unbelief. Whereas Jesus, when he was hungry, he demonstrated his complete trust in God. Looking now at the second temptation that Luke has recorded, we'll have a look at verses 5 through to 8. And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, 
all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord God, thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Before we look at this, let's consider something else. There are people, certain people, who instead of acknowledging, simply acknowledging that they don't understand how it is that the devil took the Lord Jesus Christ up into a high mountain where all the kingdoms of the world were showed to him in a moment of time. What they do is they proceed to give various explanations that are not in the word of God. They don't understand it, so they come out with an explanation that is nowhere to be seen in the Bible. For example, arguing that it is not possible to see all the kingdoms of the world from even the highest mountain, they might then explain that Jesus wasn't literally taken anywhere and that what really happened was that the devil was somehow able to project the image of the high mountain and all the kingdoms of the world into the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. There you have it. As for me, I don't claim to understand how it happened either, but I don't feel the need to give an explanation that is that is not found in our text or anywhere else in the Bible. Instead, let us just consider the temptation. The devil promised the Lord Jesus Christ power over all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. The thing is, it was not a promise that he could ever deliver on, even if he had wanted to. For one thing, it was not his to give. Although the Bible describes Satan as the prince of this world and the god of this world, those titles speak of his influence in the wicked and sinful hearts of people, and it speaks of their subjection to him. Those titles have nothing to do with the devil having ownership of the world. The fact is that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all they that dwell therein. In other words, God owns everything, lock, stock and barrel. And the devil owns nothing. There was a condition attached to the devil's generous offer to Jesus, even though he was not in a position to deliver on it, even if he'd wanted to. Jesus would have to fall down. You see that in Matthew's account of what happened. Jesus would have to fall down, and as we see, he would have to worship the devil. In other words, Jesus would have to fall upon his knees before the devil, he would have to touch the ground with his forehead as an expression of profound reverence. That is precisely how Satan operates. He tempts wicked and covetous hearts with some kind of gratification or reward or advancement. He was doing that to Jesus there bow down, worship before me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory. There was that offer of great reward for bowing down before the devil. And this, we see the devil operating like this elsewhere. For, for example, Eve 
in the Garden of Eden, despite the Lord having clearly said to Adam, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, despite that having been said to Eve's husband, the serpent said to Eve, Ye shall not surely die, ye shall be as gods. So God says, the day you eat of it, you you shall surely die. And then the devil saying, you shall be as gods. Or look at Judas Iscariot. He betrayed Jesus for what? For 30 pieces of silver. That was his reward for doing the lusts of his father, the devil. When it comes to Jesus, if and when after about three years he completed the work that God had sent him and anointed him to do, which of course he did, God would highly exalt him. However, Jesus would first have to endure the shame, the suffering and the ignominy of the cross. I thought I'd get it wrong on the day. Yeah. Satan's evil proposition to Jesus on the high mountain was that if Jesus just threw himself at his feet and worshipped him, nothing more than that, just worship him, it seems like that one act of worship there, all of the pain and suffering of the cross would be avoided and he would still be highly exalted, not by God, but by Satan. Had Jesus done the unthinkable and worshipped the evil one on that mountain, He would have fallen outside of God's will and there would have been no cross, no atonement for sin, no salvation, no hope, nothing for you and me except the expectation of punishment, eternal punishment for our sins. As it turned out about three years later, God's will was done when Jesus laid down his life as an atonement for sin. That evil and empty promise of the devil to the Lord Jesus Christ was conditional upon Jesus prostrating himself before him. However, Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Perhaps in those words of rebuke, you can sense something of the righteous indignation of the Lord towards the devil for his impudence and his irreverence and his audacity in that he dared to ask the incarnate Son of God to commit such a gross abomination. What the devil was asking Jesus to do strikes at the very heart of God's law, which commands us to love God with our whole being. But even with that most odious of temptations, the Lord Jesus Christ did not use his divine power to crush Satan's head, Neither did he cast Satan into the everlasting fire. Instead, he responded with the word of God as he had done before and he said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And those words can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. Coming now to the third temptation, we'll have a look at verses 9 through to 12. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. 
For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt, uh, thou dash thy foot against the stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. As before, how the devil brought the Lord Jesus Christ to the holy city and set him upon the highest point of the temple, it's not given to us, we're not told. Suffice to say that it really did happen because if it was nothing more than some kind of image being projected by the devil into the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, any talk of jumping off the top of that temple would have been meaningless. When the devil challenged Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, he quoted the word of God. Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 where he shall he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. There's no doubt about it, to those who are trusting in God, he has shown himself to be a refuge, a strength, a shield, everything, a very present help in trouble. And I've got testimonies that I could give, you can believe me or not, about how God has been with me in some very difficult situations. I have no doubt about it. And he does send his angels to protect and deliver his people from various mortal dangers. For example, before the Lord rained rained down fire and brimstone upon Sodom, angels took Lot and his family by the hand and led them out of that city. However, although the word of God gives assurances of God's protective care, it does not give us license to put God to the test. What the devil was doing was misusing the scriptures for his own evil purpose. It has been said that the devil's art of quoting scripture has been spread far and wide in the devil's school and some of his pupils and graduates are doctors that are quite as expert as he is, doctors of theology. One of the ways that this is happening is that there are many of the devil's pupils who twist the scriptures in order to for their own purposes, they preach, for example, um, a prosperity gospel in their churches instead of preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But this is what the devil does and this is what his pupils do. People who masquerade as church pastors and preachers. Had Jesus done what the devil challenged him to do, his sin would have been one of presuming upon God's providential care. Instead, he once again responded with a, with a correct use of the word of God when he said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. A bit of application for us in all of this. The fact that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness 
where he was tempted by the devil tells us that he didn't just happen to walk into temptation as if by chance. It didn't just happen. The temptation that Jesus endured in the wilderness was by God's appointment from start to finish. In Mark's account of the temptation, it is written in Mark chapter 1 and verse 12 that the Spirit drove the Lord Jesus Christ into the wilderness. Although that most certainly does not mean that Jesus was forced to go into the wilderness, it can nevertheless be deduced that the leading of Jesus into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit was in a manner of it being a strong impulse upon him, thus demonstrating just how much it was his desire, it was demonstrating how much it was God's design that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, should um, experience, should face those demonic trials. As for Jesus, we need not imagine that he had any burning desire to enter into that terrible experience. Even so, he voluntarily submitted to his Father's will. That brings to mind the night before Jesus was lifted up to die, bearing away the sins of all who would ever trust in him. His resolve to do his Father's will was as steadfast as ever. And that steadfastness was very evident in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus was lifted up to die. In the garden, where being in agony, he sweat, as it were, great, great drops of blood at the prospect of drinking the cup of sin. And he prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus did not want to drink the cup of sin. After all, he is the sinless Son of God. However, Jesus didn't stop with those words. He then said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Consequently, Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Though Jesus experienced temptation, he was never drawn away from doing his Father's will. And that perfect obedience of Jesus to God's will in life and in death is imputed to the account of all of you who truly believe that at the cross he paid the penalty for all your sins, including the innumerable times that you have been drawn away and have conceived sin, having caved in to temptation. And therefore I say to you, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptised. Be saved from your sins. Amen.